So I just wanted to check the sound. Is that okay back there in the back? As more people head for the chairs. (laughs) Yes. So tonight I thought I'd start with uh, some of, um, for myself, some old humor from uh, Tofu Roshi, who is sort of the dear Abbey of the Zen world. And um, this is a, a question to Tofu Roshi. Dear Tofu Roshi, when I meditate, I seem to exhale more completely than I inhale. And consequently, by the end of the meditation period, I feel quite deflated. (laughs) What do you think I should do? This is from Prudence Bird Whistle. Dear Prudence, proper breathing technique is widely misunderstood. You are not alone in having trouble with it. From your letter, it sounds as though you may be making a common mistake breathing out more times than you're breathing in. This is why we recommend counting breaths. Only by counting can you be completely sure you are exhaling (laughs) and inhaling the same number of times. One of my students uses golf counters for this. With (laughs) With her left hand, she enumerates inhales, while with her right, she takes account of exhalations. At the end of the period, she checks to make sure the numbers on the two counters are the same. If there's any discrepancy, she takes an extra moment to even things up, (laughs) adding the indicated number of exhalations or inhalations. But it is best, it is best to alternate when possible. Breathe in once, breathe out once, and then go all the way back to the beginning of the cycle and repeat. This is the basic principle of Zen. (laughs) Uh, So tonight I'd like to explore with you uh, really some of the uh, what uh, basic view uh, of the kind of overall practice in some way, and I'll be speaking at, of it in four different aspects. And uh, one is uh, what is sometimes translated as uh, calm abiding or concentration or samadhi, um, uh, which is really the principle. And then there's intuitive insight, uh, which is really the means. And then there is, uh, we'll call it simply a single taste, uh, the actual uh, non-separateness itself. And uh, then the fourth uh, thing I'd like to speak about this evening is just this word ordinariness. So uh, to frame this, uh, I would like to start with uh, one of my poems here is a kind of means, Um, a lot of times I like to write it, but uh, this has been such a busy retreat that I didn't have time this afternoon since we were doing interviews uh, and connecting. So uh, this is called Sitting in Amazement. 
Oh, mercy, mercy, why sit in the dark? This pond of self, only to dive into the darkness, sinking deeper and deeper, allowing the face paint, which was so carefully crafted to dissolve into swirling colors. Somewhere deep down in the unknown, face paint smeared, tattered clothes of young princes and princesses stripped to the bone. One turns up where the rays of dawn over hills of Japanese calligraphy, streaming colors shining through the transparency of our thoughts. Next moment, crashing to the surface, dripping from the depths, one looks down seeing the paintbrushes you reflected on the water. The jars of paint with names like mother, father, expectation, old wounds, betrayals, beliefs, abandonment, fears, all waiting be, to be painted back on that smeared face, knowing somewhere deep down that less paint is needed to face the world. Less paint is needed to face the world. So our practice here, uh, we come together and, and uh, practice in a, um, a practice that is really based on the fact that uh, we uh, need to, in essence, uh, one, of, one of the words I didn't use, but I feel is so important uh, as simply a noting of a process that happens here. And it is that uh, which we can note as collecting. So uh, in essence, uh, a lot of our life is just uh, simply uh, the awareness or the consciousness itself is just uh, like a, I mentioned, I think the first uh, morning in the instructions that it's a monkey that just is jumping on object to object and keeps running, uh, constantly looking. Uh, and uh, for moments of um, connectedness or satisfaction and then jumping to another object. Uh, this is how it is. You know. I remember when my first years, I had a. I was living in Paris and and uh, and uh, kind of the earlier '60s, and and um, I got this book called From Morning Sadhu, and it was called Concentration. And so uh, my interest was actually. Uh, uh, Mostly was to get high, I think, uh, was the <laughs> primary interest, you know. But uh, there was the use of a candle. And so I learned, oh, you could stare at a candle. And with that, you could actually go into somewhat altered states, which is really what I was uh, interested in at that time. But the fundamentals were there uh, in the fact that uh, we have to somehow uh, find uh, a means uh, to collect ourselves, to collect uh, uh, what we uh, recognize on some level. And so the fundamentals of the practice are based on that. I know that in my own kind of exuberance uh, after uh, going overland to India in the 60s and uh, 
uh, having lived, I think I'd lived in Nepal or so, a year or so, and, and um, been involved with Tibetan teachers, that someone told me and said, oh, there was a man in India where uh, you could go and, and um, you could get enlightened in seven days, <laughs> right? You know, and I'd buy anything in those days. I mean, I tried all the kinds of little pills before and that, um, you know, it worked in its way, but uh, it's quickly disappeared. So I remember I went and I had very long hair then and a beard and kind of matted hair. I was uh, kind of what, you know, kind of wore a skirt and barefooted and lots of beads and bangles and all that stuff, you know. And I went, I remember the first thing said, well, if you come to the ashram, uh, and this was on the Ganges uh, in Bihar state, which is probably the poorest state in India, really, that um, I would have to uh, shave my head and take all these vows to go in. And so at first it was, that was the shock. Oh, I had to actually change myself. You know? <laughs> this is a big deal, you know. I mean, I'd spent a long time cultivating this look, you know. <laughs> and uh, they were going to shave my head. And so actually I finally said, well, yeah, I, I, I just, you know, seven days? That's cool. I'll try it. What the hell? But then part of the agreement was, I didn't realize at the time was, well, part of it was uh, I was to become a, a sannyasana, a Hindu monk. And uh, so uh, my outfit was a G-string uh, with a, 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 this longi, uh, which is and uh, kind of an orange T-shirt. And, um, and that was about the extent of it, you know. And then the teacher was really wild, you know. He, he really was on this thing, well, oh, you, you were supposed to commit for three years uh, in this ashram. And I went, oh, well, three years. But I didn't know, you know, one week to three years, what the hell, it's all just, you know, time. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, sure, that sounded all right to me, you know. <laughs> and the first month was all based on the fact that uh, it was the idea of tearing down the self. You know, and so we were all put in one room, and uh, there I think there were fifty some people. There weren't. There were what three Westerners, and um, they would wake us up in the middle of the night, and we'd go down and we'd have to do breath of fire for like an hour, and then uh, go back. And, and uh, the other thing was we were um, part of the ideals was we would be. Uh, fed by the community. The only problem was this was the third year of a drought. Uh, so there really wasn't anything, you know. And so after some, um, um, I don't know, six weeks, I got malnutrition and, had, and actually left. I didn't spend the three years. But there was a whole piece around uh, really learning. One thing was about uh, the surrender, and the other was collecting, that I really began to understand that what is collecting, you know. And how I really got this was from a gentleman that was more of a, of, you know, like a, more of a transference that happened with me, where he, um, he had been a, a Krishna Bhakti all his life, and he had owned a pharmacy, and he spoke... Uh, uh, impeccable English. 
And he uh, actually, his whole life, he had visualized this, this goddess. And I had no idea who that was. And I used to go and I would sit with him in this little tower overlooking the Ganges. And I actually began, uh, as I would sit with him, to begin, and I had no context for this, uh, to actually see, in a sense, what he saw. Uh, I had no context of this guy's, but I suddenly uh, was able to, that whatever kind of power of his faith and his concentration uh, was actually transmittable on some level. You know? And so it was my first inkling that uh, you know, this was stepping into a territory uh, that uh, had uh, deep ramifications. And so we use the words, you know, uh, there's the word calm abiding or shamatha, or, and they talk about it as uh, stages of uh, nine stages in the kind of Tibetan tradition of calm abiding. And uh, in the Theravadan school we come out of, there's the, these jhanas, which are all, they really are mystical states uh, that uh, deal with uh, these absorptions. And so we hold that and we rest that, that this is not just um, you know, a psychological uh, process. This is actually has a, a history, a deep, long process of uh, a mystical tradition uh, that when the mind becomes settled, uh, it can actually, uh, in the sense of nature, uh, that the nature of the mind itself, uh, through, in a sense, calming itself, uh, that it also can begin to see or feel into the mysteries uh, of uh, what's here. You know, so I'm saying that this is that's kind of the extent of this. Now, for all practical purposes, what we're doing here. Uh, has some of that in it. But the main purpose here uh, is that we're trying to collect ourselves. And collect ourselves, we put our attention on just the simple, it may be for you this whole time, is just uh, bringing the attention back to the breath over and over again. Uh, and allowing this uh, sense, first of all, as uh, we begin to do that, uh, we, of course, uh, see how this monkey mind uh, is quite uncontrollable and seems to have its own agenda. No. And uh, also that uh, as we sit here, uh, as I could see this afternoon when uh, Heather asked how many people had found kind of some uh, a place where there was that kind of uh, simple connection and that that calmness was uh, actually available, you know, and something that's experienced here, uh, and becomes the foundation or the basis uh, of uh, the practice here. Uh, that we uh, we sit, uh, we allow ourselves uh, this permission to whatever level uh, we we have or time we have. I mean, for myself, I know that, uh, you know, before I was 30, I'd spent over two years in retreat. 
So uh, I had some understanding of this uh, as not only a way to uh, bring some calmness, but also in some exceptional states. But it's not necessarily the object of it here. Okay, because truly uh, that's where we begin is try to create this um, a stableness or steadiness that then we can turn uh, towards the second aspect, which I simply uh, called intuitive insight. And intuitive insight is our capacity to see into, in a sense, the operating system. You know, uh, how is it that this uh, right now uh, is uh, happening? So we actually use the calmness not necessarily to go into mystical states, but actually to see into the way things are. You know, and how how, how you uh, kind of hold and uh, know uh, what it is that's happening. We use a word. Uh, this word sati, this word mindfulness, uh, as uh, the kind of principles here of um, in the awareness itself to know what it is that's happening. And the word mindful, uh, being the mindful uh, of what's here, uh, is first of all, uh, technically, uh, and this, I have some questions about this, and maybe this is a little there, a little bit out there. But uh, we're never really right here, uh, as long as it, with the awareness, as long as we're thinking, we're always somewhere behind the eight ball. Okay, is this now? I'm just going to play with this for a minute, you know. And the way I've been kind of looking at this is that. Uh, what's happening uh, is happening so rapidly uh, that we're uh, somewhere way behind it. And then so when they sometimes refer to mindfulness, they actually are talking about it as memory. So it's actually remembering, in a sense, what's already happened. Um, and it's very simple. It is not a complex thing at all. Uh, it is simply that that knows uh, what's happening. Now, I think what's interesting in this, and this is the only description I've been working lately with this description, and, and it, it may be rather simplistic, but uh, it's, and certainly there's probably other images. But that's uh, the way my mind works, too, is if there's a motorboat going along and there is the place where the water and the hull meet, and then there is the wake of the boat that's going behind it, that uh, essentially unconsciousness, when we're unconscious, we're way down the wake. And what happens here is we begin to kind of settle the mind and, and there's some kind of uh, stability there, then 
we began to actually uh, move up the wake in a sense, that we get closer to where the contact uh, between um, uh, the senses and the mind and the moment. No. But I'm also saying we're not going to be right there. We're just going to get closer. And as we get closer, then we go from, in a sense, a kind of unconsciousness uh, to the self-consciousness. And we begin to develop uh, somewhat what you could call the, the watcher. No. And the watcher or the observer, uh, through the mindfulness, becomes, uh, is emphasized somewhat. So we begin to walk around more self-conscious, you know, which is not necessarily a comfortable thing, by the way. You know. Um, but because we're getting closer, uh, then uh, there's actually in the mindfulness itself, because the mindfulness itself, uh, it is nothing but here, okay? It can't be anywhere else. It's just the momentary experience of presence. Yeah. Now, what's also true is that you could say, well, you know, I was watching the, there was great things happening today. The, there were a series of crows that were flying in all directions, and they were having so much fun in the wind, and they were high up, and they were just, uh, you know, uh, definitely playing, you know, and there was also a, a, a hawk, a, a young kite that was flying around, and, and um, uh, the uh, thing is that, say, for instance, that kite, when it's looking down, and it's, it's hunting, uh, there is uh, a mindfulness there in the sense of momentary awareness of what it is that it's putting its attention on. So it actually has concentration and it has uh, that uh, awareness or mindfulness. So what is it that's different here? And it's something that is actually uh, built into us. Uh, quite a remarkable uh, process uh, which in, in the uh, Theravadan language is uh, it's called sampapajana, uh, which is simply that along with the mindfulness uh, comes clear comprehension. So there's this intelligence that as we allow that mindfulness, uh, even though it can only be experienced here, it can't be about uh, thinking anything up, uh, it's not about the thinking. It's actually about this uh, reestablishing moment after moment, this simple connection to here. You know. And that is simply that consciousness arises and uh, in its nature, uh, it is uh, contacting for so many moments. Uh, whether it's seeing or hearing, or right now you may be, you know, scratching your butt, I don't know, or, you know, you may be only listening to, you know, maybe 20% uh, of what I'm saying, there's all kinds of thoughts going on, and 
other experiences in the body. I'm aware of this. It's, it's just the way we are, you know. And that uh, momentary awareness that's there you know, uh, has this ability to actually, this intelligence has uh, in its clarity of purpose, uh, first of all, it understands, uh, in essence, a direction. So it, it knows, uh, I, I like to think of it as it knows uh, what uh, uh, awakening is. You know, fundamentally, that all uh, human beings, that when they have that calmness and they're a little closer with that self-awareness or that watcher, and are uh, moment after moment uh, focusing on what's here. Uh, that it's igniting that intelligence that recognizes that uh, freedom is not something um, that's not inherent. It's something that we know in ourselves. So, so what it's saying is, is in those moments, there is a longing, uh, a longing to know a longing for freedom uh, that is being ignited, inherent in the clear comprehension. No. There's also, along with that, is uh, this capacity, uh, which is its ability uh, that there, this intelligence has the capacity to, uh, has a, a dynamic in it, that is adaptable, you know, and they also use the word suitability. But I like to see it as this, uh, that when there's, the mind is clear and has enough focus and is just bringing itself back to here over and over again, and it begins to, what, begins to trust its ability to respond, you know, so you don't have to think about it. Innately, there is a um, an intelligence uh, that doesn't have to think it all up, you know, that there is this inherent trust uh, in the mindfulness itself and the capacity uh, to uh, just keep coming back to here uh, that will take care, you know, fundamentally. Uh, it also has the ability in that to uh, kind of understand uh, what I can simply, uh, the translation is clear comprehension of reality. You know, now that's kind of big, okay? But I'll try to just pull it apart a little bit here. Because a lot in that when the mind keeps coming back over and over again to just being here and it learns more and more that it can trust uh, not in figuring it out but in essence kind of surrendering uh, to this intelligence and this, uh, this truth of just momentary awareness. That it, as it begins to do that the way that we think uh, which has been uh, based on, uh, from very young age, 
on our ability to in essence, control our environment uh, through comparison and uh, figuring out go left, right, up, down. And what this is about when one begins more and more to trust and relate to just here in the most simple way and recognize that there is an intelligence in that that then begins uh, to uh, drop below the language. You know, and the language is all based on a cultural conditioning. All of us have a little bit of different cultural conditioning. But there's something underneath the language itself, which is actually that experience of just uh, in essence, um, uh, one of the things we get caught in here is that the way the mind works, uh, in a sense of always trying to create safety, is that we are always solidifying uh, the objects that, say, for instance, you see if your eyes are open right now, or just in the hearing, you know. And the question is, you know, uh, am I here? You know, or is this sound out here? Or is this something you're actually, in, your, in the seeing, it's actually something that's happening on the eye. The sound is actually happening on the ear. You know. And that part of this, the mind full of what's here, uh, is that it begins to release the objects. You know, in quantum physics, they uh, talk about, you know, things as being, the objects themselves actually is a uh, is concentrated emptiness. You know, that actually if we're looking at things and we stop the naming everything by language, uh, but we, we start seeing it in its kind of primal sense then we release it, we free it, you know. And we begin then, in essence, to see the uh, unsubstantialness of it, the, the inherent, in, in essence, the emptiness of it, you know. And so you're releasing everything uh, that's uh, being uh, thought, being seen, being noticed, uh, sensations smell, taste, hearing, our senses and thought. And as we release that, then uh, there, um, begins to, uh, first of the unsubstantialness, uh, which is really saying that I can let go of everything on one hand. And the other one, there's nothing you can change here right now. Everything you see is what it is. Everything you hear is what you hear, is what is right now. And so suddenly we are holding this paradox of one thing, the unsubstantialness of things, and the other one, there's no separateness here. 
You can't take anything out of this. We're all here together. Uh, actually, in some ways, we could say there's just uh, a mind, you know, and that there's a functioning somehow going on here that is totally connected. You know, it, it, it actually cannot be separate. And once we began to go underneath the language, we began to see that, for one thing, the unsubstantialness of things, and so uh, we kind of see the, the uh, kind of the, I guess the emptiness is the only word I can connect with right now, which really kind of says I can let go of everything. And on the other side, there's really nothing else but connection here. You know, it's the paradox of actually having dropped drop down below all this. And then we start going, well, at that point, then uh, there is uh, what's happening here, uh, which uh, is uh, this third aspect, which is uh, a, a single taste. No. And a single taste means that, in essence, there can still be thought going on and all sorts of things, but it's all just here, you know, in its essence. And not to. You know. And so we have now, actually, we sit in this place of here and releasing everything as it arises in its connectedness. So the single taste in essence is a, a, a pure moment of here. You know? And the thing is, it can only happen in, in really fractions of a second. You know, it's not something you can hold on to. It's something that you constantly reestablish you know, and hopefully stabilize on some level that uh, you are allowing uh, everything to be as it is, you know, and yet there is this phenomenal wakefulness you know, uh, that is not distinguishing, but is simply uh, awareness itself. You know? So in essence, the, the, that that knows uh, is single. You know, it is not a split off. It's just here. You know. And therefore, where is there to look? You know, and at that point, the beginning where we say, oh, I know that freedom in the, the Sampa Bhajana, uh, there is a longing for that. And in single taste, it says, there's no no more seeker, you know. There is just uh, this surrendering or releasing into uh, here, you know. And that freedom was not something to be uh, found in the sense of looking. It was something that was already here and that we simply had to surrender uh, ultimately. Uh, to hear. 
so t- sometimes uh, this is uh, referred to this single taste as just uh, the absolute, and that uh, it is not something that. Mm-hmm. because it's not separate. Uh, There's nothing we can do with it, except it exists. And our willingness to, um, for moments, uh, allow it in this kind of intuitive sense of things, this intuitive insight. uh, To begin to guide. Uh, how things happen, you know. And so what's this based on is that single taste uh, is really uh, no longer about some special state or anything else, and they translate the word, or I like the word, ordinariness. That ultimately, when the seeking is not seeking anymore, and that there is this capacity to own, to be responsible for here. Uh, that there is a, a deep sense of trust or relaxation that uh, begins to be the ground of this ordinariness. Now, and how to hold that is just uh, a lot of this is just a somatic reality. You know, you wanted to be born, I guess, but you're here, you know, and you have these five senses in this mind is really uh, that that walks the path. You know, so the practice is fully owning that, the whole body, the whole breath. You know, all the senses, you know, all the thinking, it's, it's okay, you know. And we have to begin to recognize the difference between struggle and freedom, you know. And when you notice yourself struggling, you know, uh, part of this is making that struggle somewhat you know, sort of like a you know, magnifying glass here, kind of, or, uh, you know, 10 times it kind of expands how it works so we can see how the operating system works. And then begin to choose and say, oh, I know how to let go. This is my very, very fundamental nature. And in that, there is a recognition that somehow, you know, it would be nice to say there's just one arrow, but unfortunately there are many, many arrows, you know. And um, as part of this, Heather used the word humanness, you know, that the humanness uh, has that. And, you know, when we begin to recognize that uh, that's that this is kind of a wave that's happening right now in this very second, and we're all 
part of that wave. We're not separate from that wave. And that there is just one person suffering. Because we're all connected. Then there's not any, in essence, separateness in that. And so there is the essential piece of awakening that is actually the heart itself. It begins to know itself. uh, Not as separate, but as part of everything. And so the practice from that point of view is we use the mind, we train the mind to bring some calmness, and then we begin to use it to train ourselves to be here and have some insight and to actually begin to break down some of the uh, belief systems and the constructs we've made. You know, you're not going to get out of this alive. You know, you're not going to get out. You know, no one in this room, you know, we're lucky, 100 years, really lucky, you know. I was, uh, I remember the first retreat when we came back to the States and, and um, the first Vipassana retreat we did was up in the Sequoia National Park. And it was a month long and, and uh, uh, my friend Joseph was teaching it and, and uh, People, you'd see people in these huge sequoia trees, you know, 5,000 years old, people going up and hugging them, you know, and uh, to give some perspective to what this all is, you know, 5,000 years, I got maybe, you know, super lucky, you got 100, you know. So we're kind of all in this boat together, you know, we're all going downstream. And as you wake up to the reality of that, then naturally the heart softens. You know? And you'll forget. Uh, but I also know you will remember because that's ultimately where this uh, heads in the ordinariness. So maybe I'll just end there. Let you chew on that for a while. Please don't chew on it, that is. But you are choosing between struggle and freedom. And it is here. It's not next week, next month, next year. It's it's actually always available to you. Uh, And you can choose that. That's the teachings here. Oh, mercy, mercy, why sit in the dark, this pond of self, only to dive into the darkness, sinking deeper and deeper, allowing the face paint, which, so care- which was so carefully crafted to dissolve into swirling colors. Somewhere deep down in the unknown, face paint smeared, tattered clothes of young princes and princesses stripped to the bone. One turns up where the rays of dawn over hills of Japanese calligraphy, streaming colors shining through the transparency of thoughts. 
next moment crashing to the surface, dripping from the depths, one looks down seeing the paint brushes, you reflected in the water. The jars of paint with names like mother, father, expectations, old wounds, betrayals, beliefs, abandonment, fears, all waiting to be painted back on that smeared face. Knowing somewhere deep down that less paint is needed to face the world. So, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.